Well, good morning again, and welcome to Christ Community Church. My name is Nathan. I'm the campus pastor here. It's, uh, it's good to be together. Uh, that was a lot of third, first graders. Um, wow, that was a lot of first graders. Very fun. Um, yeah, well, again, so glad that you're here. Glad that you've carved out this time uh, to be in this place uh, together as a church. Well, one of my first uh, mentors, as I considered being a pastor, uh, this would have been uh, while I was in seminary at our, our, at our church there, um, he at one, at one point told me something that kind of just kind of caught me off guard uh, a little bit. Um, maybe even just made me a tiny, a tiny bit uncomfortable. Uh, he told me he was probably in his 50s at the time, maybe had been a pastor about 30 years, uh, a man that I certainly respect and, you know, a faithful individual. Uh, but he said to me kind of out of blue, Nathan, I've always struggled with depression. It's, it's never too terrible, but it's almost always there. He referred to it as chronic, low-dose depression. Now, I'd studied depression a little bit in school, certainly. Um, I knew that depression runs in my family. Uh, But what I didn't know is that 12 years later, I would say that's probably a fairly accurate description for me as well. It's just kind of part of my story. Never, Never too terrible. Just sort of always... There, right? Chronic, low dose, whatever you want to call it, whatever, right? Now, for, for many of you, that's not a surprise, right? Um, I've said such things before, and I mean, some of you probably knew this about me before I did, right? Um, it's just kind of the nature, nature of it. Um, I've, always had, I've always had my, you know, moods or, you know, moments or seasons or whatever, um, but I think it's really just been in the last year or two that I've kind of just come to the grips that this is just, this is just part of my story, It's part of what it means to be Nathan. Uh, Never too terrible, um, but almost almost always there. Now, if you're new here, um, I hope that doesn't make you as uncomfortable as it made me 12 years ago. Sorry about that. Um, But for others of you, uh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And frankly, you, you know more about it than I do. For many of you in your story, it's, it's not exactly so low dose, is it? Now, I realize not all of us feel this way, right? We're all wired differently, made up differently, and, and experience life in, in very different ways. I, I absolutely understand it. So maybe your story is, is, different, is different from my story. And, and yet, I think it's almost a nearly universal phenomenon. Maybe it is universal that all of us, whether you're Christian or not, whether you're young or old, all of us will at some point or have at some point or are even now in this moment walking through some sort of desert. Emotionally, spiritually, maybe physically, relationally, right? There's, there's all kinds. Now, I like to visit the desert, actually. In fact, we just got back from Phoenix not too long ago. It's, it was 110 every day, but we love it there, right? But the, the desert is only, it's only beautiful, it's only enjoyable if you know exactly where your next glass of water is going to come from, right? Because it may be a dry heat, but it will kill you, right? And, and the psalmist, the psalmist knew about desert living. Literally, certainly, right? That's much of their makeup in this sort of arid wilderness, a place common with, with drought and, and difficulty, but even more so, the psalmist knows about the desert that, that lives in here sometimes. You know, when it's, when it's all dried up, 
when, when life starts to heat up around you or you look at your hopes and your dreams and they just haven't added up like you want them to, the physical, the emotional, the spiritual droughts within us, those moments, those seasons, you just want to know where God is. Because you're, you're pretty confident that he's not vacationing in the same desert, right? And, and you cry out, what, God, what, what are you doing? Where, where are you? And, and twice, twice in our text this morning, that question, where is your God, is raised. As well as questions like, why have you forgotten me? And why have you rejected me? This is why I love the Psalms in many ways. There's no place I turn to more often in my Bible in the, in the midst of my own melancholy or, or doubt or, or, or whatever it is, right? The psalmist is brutally honest and gives me words to express my own inexpressible ache. In Psalm 42 and 43, that's where we're at this morning. These are two of my favorites. I turn here often. These are a place of rest for my soul, a place of quiet in the midst of chaos. And it's two psalms. Uh, but many would say that they, they belong together. In fact, it's, it's clear that in some way or another, whether they're written at the same time or not, or by the same person or not, they clearly go together. They repeat many of the same ideas and even some of the exact same phrases and words as one another. So we're going to look at them together. They're psalms of lament. Uh, in fact, many of the psalms, if you were to read through all 150 of them, in fact, some, some scholars would say that most of the psalms are psalms of lament. A lament is an agonized cry to God. And in all of ancient Near Eastern literature and religion of that time period, if you were to look at the entire body right, of that, of all the prayers written to all of the deities in that area, in that time period, none are nearly so raw, so brutal, so honest as the psalms of lament, the psalms that we have right here in our scriptures. God actually invites us, our God, invites us to bring our pain to him. So what's the difference between a complaint and a lament? You know, just being a whiner, right? Versus actually lamenting. Well, a complaint usually talks about God in the third person. Right? It's not addressed to him, it's about him. It's, it's when we say, why doesn't God just do this? But a lament takes those same complaints and addresses them to God. God, why won't you do this? I mean, the difference is subtle, but the difference is, is faith. It's, it's a relationship. It's something that keeps, the, keeps tethered together. And for me, when I, when I feel low, right, when God feels distant, uh, those times when I cry out and all I hear is the agonized sound of my own, my own voice, these psalms of lament. I mean, nearly, nearly every, every Christian will experience this at some point or another. We'll go through a time of spiritual drought when you just want to know where God is. You're not the first. You won't be the last. And so we learn from those who've gone before. And so that this past month, for example, we've been in the Psalms, right, learning, hopefully learning how to pray, how to connect with this, this God, right, how to address him, this ancient prayer book written so long ago, and trying to make these, these prayers our own. Well, how do you pray when God feels absent, when, when he feels so far away? How do, how do you do it then? Well, that's, that's what we see in these Psalms. 
And, and if there's one thing for us to remember this morning, if there's one thing that you take out of this building with you as you leave, I hope it's this. Our God is not afraid of the desert. Our God is not afraid of the desert. Sure, we, we hate it, right? We don't like it when we're there. It hurts us, and we, we question, and we wonder, and all of that. And yet, no, God does not cease to be God in those moments. No, he doesn't actually leave us, nor does he expect us to pretend in front of him. Our God is not afraid of the desert. And three things to help us navigate as we work through this old, old poem, this old prayer. Three things. When you're in the desert, first, you've got to look for God even if you can't find him. And keep looking and keep looking. And you can't mistake his silence for his absence, even when it feels like it. And you've got to tell yourself what you already know, sometimes over and over and over again. Well, let me, let me just pray for us, ask for God's help as we look at this, this psalm. God, I'm so thankful that you have given us words uh, to be, begin to express and to understand some of the pain that we feel, uh, as well as the joys. And God, I, I know that in this room there are plenty who come here this morning in the midst of a drought, who feel lost in a desert. And so God, would you allow this place, this room even, and these words, both spoken and sung, I pray that they would be an oasis in the desert, a place where we could even just grab a sip of your presence for our dry and weary soul. And God as well, for those for those who aren't in that place, who, who find themselves in a place of great joy, God, I pray that their joy would be contagious for the rest of us, that their joy in you would spread to all of us as they sing and they rejoice. And God, I pray that, that they also wouldn't merely be naive in their joy or complacent, but God, that you would, um, yeah, prepare all of us um, for whatever dark times may be ahead. And we pray all these things so that Jesus would be glorified. Amen. Okay, so first, you've got to look for God even when you can't find him. Look for him even when you can't find him. Now, we don't know much about the story behind these psalms, right? That's common with the psalms. Sometimes they have like a little tiny line to give us a tiny itty-bitty bit of, dis- of, of description here. And this one does. It says it was written by the sons, the sons of Korah. That's about all we know for sure, right? Now, now the sons of, of Korah, they were a, a family group uh, that served in the sanctuary, uh, in, in God's temple, right? That was, that was their job. They were kind of like pastors, okay? Um, see, even, even they sometimes experience the desert. Now, it's possible, again, we don't really know. You, you read through it and you can try to piece together what's happening in this psalm. It's possible, I would say even likely, that these psalms, 42 and 43, were written during the period of exile. Okay, so that's, that's when God's people, the Israelites, have been forced out of Israel, forced out of Jerusalem. The temple has been destroyed Everything's been taken, taken away from them. And they, they just, they just want to go home. They, they want to go back. I, th- I think that's probably the context in which these were written. We don't know, but regardless, regardless, it's obvious there's some conflict happening that is keeping them out of the temple, out of the place of worship, and their enemies are taunting them, and the psalmist is in turmoil. It's like, if only I could meet with God, Right? If only I could find him, then I could know that it's okay. But the temple is off limits, and everywhere else I look just feels deserted. It feels like he's gone. And so, so he starts off in, in chapter 42, verse 1. There's three sections of this poem. Uh, we're going to read all three sections. Here's the first, the first section, Psalm 42, verse 1. 
As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? And these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And so everybody says to him, where's your God? Where'd he go? And he feels like a deer in the midst of a great drought, searching for fresh water. But all I get are my tears and their taunts, and I just can't find him. He's in the desert, and he's thirsty, and he knows that God is the only one who will satisfy that thirst. I mean, have you ever been, like, really thirsty? Most of us probably not to some extent, right? Maybe, maybe a little bit, not, not, just like, not just a little bit of thirst, but the kind of thirst where nothing else like matters anymore. All you, all you can think about is the next time you can actually quench that thirst. It reminds me of, of uh, it's like my last family vacation with my parents. So I, was, I think I was 20, I was in college. Um, and we hiked down this inlet of the Grand Canyon. It was absolutely beautiful, an oasis in the desert. We stayed there a couple days, and we had to hike back out, right? And it was maybe about like a 10-mile hike through and then up the canyon walls in the summer, desert heat blazing, all of that, you know, kind, kind of thing. Um, so I was like 20. My parents were probably in their 50s, um, and maybe just not like in the greatest of shape, okay? And and I could tell really quickly that we were going to run out of water. In fact, that we didn't have nearly enough water. And I remember, like, for at least an hour of that hike, as we kept going, just imagining my dad having a heart attack and being completely stranded there. No one around, nothing, no, no help, no, I mean, just stranded. And so I just stopped drinking any of the water, right? And I figured my young body, right, I, I'm invincible, I can handle that. And so I, I stopped so that, so that they could keep drinking. And even though, I mean, it's a small thing. It was only, you know, several miles, yes, in the desert heat, yes. But, it, I mean, it's just a tiny, tiny bit of this kind of thirst. The thirst that consumes. And this, this is how the psalmist feels. I mean, so much that he can't sleep, he can't eat, and he knows God is the only thing that will satisfy me. But where, where is he? And notice here as well in this, this text, right, and, and the words that, that follow, he's not confessing sin anywhere. I mean, there's nowhere where he's like letting his shame out before God. There, there's nothing in this psalm that would indicate that this drought is his fault in the least. He's there, and he doesn't know why. And he can't explain it. In fact, he's, he's doing all the right things. I mean, it seems like he's, he's doing everything that he knows he should be doing, and yet God feels so far away. I mean, have you ever seen this meme? We Christians love these kind of cliches. If God seems far away, who moved? Um, I mean, tell that to this guy, right? Are you kidding? Now, I mean, granted, like nine times out of ten, if God feels distant in my life, there's a good chance I had something to do with it. <laughs> 
right? There's either a sin I need to confess or a discipline I need to re-engage in, right? Of reading my Bible or praying or solitude or those kinds of things. Nine times out of ten, but not always. Not every time. Sometimes our our world is just broken. My soul is just broken. And I... I don't know why, but sometimes I just cannot connect with him. I cannot feel like, like he's there. And those, I mean, let's be honest. If you've experienced those moments, those are the times it hurts the most, doesn't it? When you don't have anything you can point at or explain it away with. And yet still, still the psalmist keeps searching for him. I mean, when, when God feels distance, we, distant, we, we look for something to satisfy, don't we? I mean, we're all thirsty, Right? But when we can't find him, we'll take just about any substitute we can take, isn't it? Isn't that true? I mean, like, for example, after, we, after the hike, we finally got to the car, uh, up to the trailhead, there's still no water, like no water anywhere. Uh, just this uh, cleverly positioned boy with his overpriced soda. That, that was it, right? Uh, which is, you know, of course, in that moment, it's the last thing, it's the last thing I need, right, is... I mean, that's not going to quench anything. And yet, of course, I bought one, and of course, it tasted delicious, right? But in the end, it left me thirstier than I was when I started, right? But that's, that's kind of how we do, isn't it? I mean, be honest with yourself for a moment. You don't have to raise your hand, but be honest with yourself. How many, how many of you, how many times did I, in this past week, just even in these past few days, in a moment of worry or stress or fear or loneliness or shame or doubt or whatever, went searching for something to satisfy that ache, to give you even just a little sip of anything to quell the thirst. I mean, where, where did you look? I mean, I can tell you where I look. Oftentimes, it's food, TV, uh, drink, buying, buying something, vacation, a distraction, family even, any of that. Because you name it, I'm thirsty. And the psalmist He can't find God, but he never stops looking. And rather than chasing every mirage, every half-hearted attempt, he just keeps looking. Friends, when you find yourself in the desert, I mean, that's going to be the time when you're most tempted to stop looking, isn't it? I mean, I know that intimately, right? The times when I'm most likely to give up on the disciplines of, of reading my Bible, praying, solitude, any of those things, it's the times when I need the most, isn't it? Don't, don't stop looking. And what's so interesting here to me as well, I mean, what the psalmist is really longing for, I mean, really, at the, he just wants to go to church, right? I mean, not really, right? Church hadn't started yet. And yet that's what he, he's longing for, a community of people, the, the place of worship, a, 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 the temple that he can go with and be with others who believe, even when you're not sure if you still do. Right, people who can rejoice, even if you don't think you have anything left to rejoice in, who look for God even after you've given up. I mean, in the drought, I tend to, I want to isolate myself. I want to hide. I want to be alone. I don't want to let anybody in. But if you're thirsty looking for God, go to the people who have found him. Because maybe they're not in the desert. And there's a good chance, right, we have a mixture of both here this morning. And if you're not in the desert, please, please share some of your water with those around you who are. And if you are in the desert, keep coming to them. Ask just for a drink. Put yourself in places where you can encounter him. Keep looking. Just look in the right places. Second, 
Second, don't mistake his silence for his absence. Don't mistake his silence. for he may, he may be silent, but if you belong to him, he will never be absent. He will never leave us. This comes out a little bit more in the, the second section of the poem. I read the first. Here's number two. And it starts at verse six. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan, of Hermon and Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. All they say to me all the day long, where, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I mean, is it any wonder he eats his tears for dinner? I mean, everything around him is so loud. And, and we know that, right? The, the turmoil within us or the, the problems around us, they scream at us and so quickly drown him out. I mean, whether he's there or not in those moments, you can't, you can't hear him and his silence feels like absence and that feeling of absence. I mean, God, even you've left me, destroys us. Man, I'm not, I'm not sure there's anything worse for me than what I'm feeling in that place. And I cry out to him and I long, I long for his intervention and yet I, I mean, there's just times when I feel like he's just washed his hands of me. And he's done. Did you know that Mother Teresa felt that way? That was one of the, one of the surprising things that came out about her life after she, she passed away. Um, all of her private papers were published. Uh, you know, poor thing, right? That's what happens, right? If you're, if you're famous, everything private gets dug out once you're, once you're gone. But for 50 years, she, she writes in her own journals, she secretly experienced great silence and doubt, even while she accomplished such incredible things. I mean, at one point, for example, she writes, listen to these words. These are in her private papers now published. She says, where is my faith? Even deep down, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. When I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. How painful is this unknown pain? I mean, faith and doubt so often go hand in hand, don't they? One moment believing, trusting, rejoicing, the, the very next questioning, wondering, wrestling, doubting. And yet the psalmist keeps crying out to him. What he feels isn't as important as what he believes. And he doesn't sweep his feelings under the rug, right? I mean, they're all over the place in this psalm, right? He does not just hide from them or push them aside. Yet what he believes about his God trumps what he feels in the desert. My God is still there. Though he, he uses a different metaphor. I don't know if you caught kind of the transition here. It's so fascinating, right? See, such extreme metaphors. He goes from the drought and the thirst to the raging waters of a waterfall and a roaring sea. And he says, God, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So think about it. Now he's drowning. Right? From the desert to drowning. 
sinking, gasping. But it's not his enemies. As much as he talks about his enemies, as much as he asks God to intervene with his enemies and the problems in his life, it's not they who are the breakers and waves in his life. He says to God, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. God, I feel like I'm drowning, but these are your waves. They haven't surprised you. They haven't caught you off guard. I don't understand it. I don't like it. And yet, for some reason, you've let them in. I don't know why. But I, I still believe you're here, even if you're here in the waves and the breakers. I mean, friends, in those, in those drowning moments, what are you saying to God? Are we just talking about him or, or to him? I mean, we do that, right? In those, those moments, we all become like little closet theologians, don't we? We start talking all about God and what we have figured out about him, and, and we start very quickly accusing him of what he should or should not be doing in my life. Do we talk about him or, t- or do we talk to him? I mean, whether you're in the raging waters now or simply preparing for it when you get there, how will you pray? What will you say? And many of us don't, right? And many of us, when those moments come, we, I mean, I'll be, I prefer to, it's easier to complain than it is to lament. It's, easy, it's easier to grumble and to whine than to actually bring these things before God. Or, or, or even, maybe you don't do that, but we come with such pretenses, right? Like it's, it's really okay and we're not really hurting and it's fine. And so we kind of, we pretend, we put this sort of gloss over our life as if God is going to be fooled by it, right? Not our God. We don't have to fake it before him. I mean, God, why have you forgotten me? I mean, the psalmist pours out his soul. He leaves, leaves nothing behind. And our faith, I mean, think about it as, as Christians. If you're a Christian, part of, part of this story, our faith does not belittle our feelings. It doesn't belittle the heartache or the hardship that we have. Sometimes, sometimes we Christians do that, but not, not this book, not this God. Instead, no, our, our God doesn't require that we clean it up before we come to him. There's, there's no other worldview or religion that so profoundly understands our brokenness, gives us context to understand why it's here, and takes it so seriously and allows us to feel the pain. Which means, friends, at this place, your church, this is a place where you don't have to hide. Where you, you can hurt, you can let it out, you can question, you can doubt, you can struggle. You can weep along with us. I mean, there's, there's hope here, right? But we're not going to pretend. God's not afraid of the desert, and we as a church, we're not going to be afraid of it either. We know that it comes, we know that it happens. But we're not going to mistake his silence for his absence. He is listening. What are we saying? All right, finally here. Because you, uh, you can't just keep looking, although we should keep looking. And you can't just keep crying out, though we should keep crying out. Uh, you also have to listen. Um, you also have to tell yourself what you already know. And remind yourself over and over and over again. I, I love that about this psalm. I think it comes out so clear. Maybe you picked up on it in the first two sort of sections of this song. Um, if you missed it there, hopefully you'll get it in this third one. 
Let me read the, the third and final section. So we're in Psalm 43 now. He says, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with a liar. God my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Nathan, why? Why are you so afraid? Why are you so overwhelmed? Why so disturbed within me? Look at God. Look at him. Look at his love. Look at his power. Look at his mercy, his goodness. I mean, it's sort of like the psalmist is saying, like with all due respect, right? He's saying, soul, would you get your act together here? I mean, again, he's not minimizing. And we, right? You haven't missed that. He's, he's raw and he is real. And yet at the end of the day, he's saying, soul, you're not in charge. Um, you're not, you're not going to rule me, soul. Soul, Get it together. Believe in this God. Hope in this God. Maybe, maybe it sounds a little stupid. Uh, maybe you just think, you know, only uh, crazy people talk to themselves. Or maybe you just think, this is, it's just poetry, right? This isn't for real life. How do we actually do this? But I've got to tell you, I, I use the Psalms regularly to talk to myself. To tell myself what I already know. To remind me of who I am. And you may not think that you talk to yourself, but you do. Who are you trying to kid, right? I mean, author, author and counselor Paul Tripp, listen to what he writes. He says, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. <laughs> Whether you realize it or not, you are in an unending conversation with yourself. And the things you say to you about you are formative of the way you live. You're already talking to yourself all the time, right? That voice, it never stops, right? Telling you how to interpret life and how to, how to feel and think and believe. And that, I mean, that voice, it never shuts up. And so what are, you, what are you hearing? What are you telling yourself? I mean, do you see how he doubts his doubts here? I'm just, I'm just amazed by that. He questions his questions, right? He, he sort of steps out and says to himself, like, what, what, are you, what are you going to believe in this? What are you going to trust? What are you, what are you going to hold to? He interrogates his own soul and he commands his soul to hope, to keep trusting, to remember his Savior. Hey, soul, you're loved. Hey, soul, God is stronger. God is good. And that's how his song ends. which is also just part of it. It's not all neat and tidy at the end. Not tied up with a little ribbon, right? Everything's good and he's easily trusting and life is fine and he goes back and no, it's, that's not it at all. And often it doesn't work that way for any of us. I mean, this refrain, right, that re- repeated here three times, I mean, it's, it's been repeated over and over and over for 2,500 years, hasn't it? Because ultimately he's longing for the same things you and I are longing for. For something that, that just feels out of reach. And again, whether life is great and you're in a moment of things are, are fine or you're, you're in the pit, either way, right, we're, we're constantly reaching for more, wanting, wanting to get something that's going to satisfy. And ultimately, what this psalmist is longing for is home. 
He's longing for Jerusalem. He's longing for the temple, for a more tangible feeling of God's presence, to know, to, to really know God's love and his nearness. And friends, there, there is a sense in which that is exactly us. I mean, the Christian life is one of waiting, isn't it? Reaching, longing. It, it, is, a, it is a life filled with lament. I mean, even our, even our best moments, they're never quite as good as they could be. And they always, they, they always leave us longing for more. And our worst moments remind us acutely that we were made for a different world. A world, a world without this, this broken, without the ache. A, a world that's, that's whole, where, where I'm whole, right? And the people around me are, are whole, where, where God himself walks with us, in relationship with us. And the reality is sometimes, more and more often, I just want to go home. I, I, love, the, I love the old Rich Mullen song. He says, so if I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I can't, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. And if I sing, let me sing for the joy that has borne in me these songs. And if I weep, let it be as a man who is longing for his home. Don't you long for home? And my, my moments of, of darkness, whatever that looks like for me, and when the, the homesickness like crashes in, right? or I feel like I'm, I'm stuck in that pit, just sort of clawing my way out. When I can't see God, I look at the cross. Because there we see that we don't have a God who is immune to this pain. We see that we don't have a God who's just distant and aloof, looking down on us poor, helpless humans, right, in our, in our misery. No, we see that we have a God who has come, who has entered it, who has embraced it, who has felt it himself, and who knows, who knows what it's like, who's actually been in the desert, right, where he was tempted for 40 days by, by sin, right, and Satan himself con- confronting him there in that place. He knows what it's like to, to pray and to, to cry out to God, God, isn't there some other way, he prays in that, that garden, right? To have his father say, no, there, there is no other way. And he knows what it's like not to just imagine God's silence or his distance, but to actually feel it, to know it as he hung there on the cross for my sins and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For me, our God knows. And when I can't feel him, I see him on that cross and I remember his love. And I hear the words that he said to his disciples so long ago. I'm preparing a place for you. I, I will take you home to be with me. Or I think about the, the great crazy vision uh, John had. John was one of Jesus' close friends, but in, we read about it in Revelation, right? This great big vision of the end of all, of all things. John saw, says he saw the holy city. Same one the psalmist was looking for, right? But, but new, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. I mean, it's exactly what the psalmist and I and we are, are thirsting for. And, and then John, right, in the midst of this vision, he sees what the end looks like, and, and heaven and earth are becoming one, and this new city, this, this new Jerusalem, and he hears these words, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear away from their eyes and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, that's, that's King Jesus, said, behold, I am making all things new. Oh, Nathan. Oh, church. Why are you cast down, oh, my soul? Why so much turmoil within me? Hope in God, for we will praise our God. We will praise the God of our salvation. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you come quickly? Would you come and make it right, make me right? God, we long for that. And I pray that together in this place we would feel your nearness um, even, even if you seem silent or distant. That together we would be able to rejoice in your presence even, even while we, we grieve the brokenness that we experience. And God, I pray that ultimately even, even in the midst of sorrow this would be a place of joy and that we would be people of joy. But you're gonna have to do that, God. You're gonna have to do that in us. And so we ask you to, in Jesus' name, amen.